Hello and welcome to episode 106 of Can We Still Be Friends, a podcast that tests the limits of the friendship between two people who mistake movie taste for personal morality. I'm Nate Goss, here with Ryan Ebling. As kids and teachers go back to school, I thought it would be fun if we talked about some of the movies that Ryan teaches in his class. So this episode, we're talking about No Country for Old Men, the 2007 classic written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. If you've listened to many of our previous episodes, you'll know the Coens are some of our favorite filmmakers. But as much as I love them, I have always meant to watch No Country for Old Men more, and I'm looking forward to learning what Mr. Ebling has to say. No Country for Old Men brought the Coens some of the highest critical praise in their celebrated career and was their highest grossing movie at that point. It won four Oscars, Best Supporting Actor for Javier Bardem, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Director, and Best Picture, which was especially impressive given that 2007 is widely regarded as one of the best years for movies of all time. Bardem's Shakur immediately entered the pantheon of all-time great movie villains, and several of the film's brilliant and disquieting scenes have become film icons. But even with all its popularity, No Country for Old Men remains famously difficult to untangle. So what business is it of ours what this movie might be trying to say? Keep listening. Brendo. The crime you see now, it's hard to even take its measure. It's not that I'm afraid of it. I always knew you had to be willing to die to even do this job. But I don't want to push my chips forward and go out and meet something I don't understand. A man would have to put his soul at hazard. He'd have to say, okay. I'll be part of this world. All right, so that was Tommy Lee Jones as Ed Tom Bell. The uh, sheriff, the lawman in the, the white movie, hat, the yeah. White, yeah, in West Texas. This is in the movie we're discussing, No Country for Old Men. Uh, he's doing some some ruminating, yeah, talking about uh, the old timers, talking yeah. about evil, not mm-hmm. knowing what to do with that evil, and that's how this thing kicks off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know you're in for a a deep movie with a lot of nuance to this. Yeah, I, I mean, it, yeah, it feels pretty significant that. To start this movie, you need to say, okay, I'll be a part of this world. <laughs> right. That's and true. And then shows you a world that you really don't know if you want to be a part yeah, of. Yeah. Yeah. Although, you know, it opens very beautifully. Oh, Nice man. sunrises over the, the yeah. Texas uh, desert. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. The landscape the landscapes is are vast. Yeah. It, it just makes you feel like you're in store for a Western. You are a little bit. So why are we doing this movie? Um, you know, if, if folks who listened to our last episode of Josie and the Pussycats, uh, during that, the preview section of that episode, we talked about how for this month we're going back to school. Yeah. And what we mean by that is uh, Ryan's day job is actually as a high school English teacher. That's at right. One of the local high schools around here. Mm-hmm. But one of the classes that uh, Mr. Ebling teaches at the <laughs> high school is a class called uh, Philosophy and Film. That's right. And it, so... Basically, this is a little bit of a selfish episode on my part. I I wanted I've wanted to take this class, and one of the movies that um, Ryan discusses in his class every year, every semester, don't you do That's it twice? Right, yeah, is uh, No Country for Old Men, which you know, again, as we we mentioned in the intro, huge fans of the Coen Brothers on this uh, podcast. We've already done Barton Fink and The Big Lebowski. That's this right. I think is the only filmmakers that we've done three this, times. Three times. I think. I'm I pretty think sure so. this is it. A new can we still be friends record yeah but i think one of the reasons we never really decide to tackle this movie is because of kind of what we said it's a it's a kind of a difficult movie to untangle to talk about mm-hmm. um there's so many ways i mean you could look up all the different ways that people have done essays on this movie yeah video essays written essays That's and right. they all come from different angles i think because you have to start with some kind of entry point for this movie. You can't just do like what we normally do and say, well, what'd you think? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? Like you could talk about so much. It's good to kind of give it some framework. And so I think our framework is going to be sort of how you frame it for your class. Yeah. Does that sound good for you? Yeah. Does that sound I mean, like a good I, I way think, to... I think it'll kind of come and go with that. I don't necessarily need to... Because uh, honestly, the way I teach it, it, it kind of depends on who I'm talking to, you know, like I don't have, I don't have worksheets or outlines or things. 
So what comes out of my classroom discussions is different based on each class I have. So what comes out of the conversation with us is going to be a little bit different too. So I definitely want and need you bringing what you sure. bring to it. Sure. Um, I don't have lectures prepared necessarily. Oh, you um, want me to do your work it, for you? Is that what it comes down <laughs> that's to? It. That's that's like most of my uh, I teaching. Is I making see the, the Ebling, kids do the the Ebling work. method coming yep, to light here. That's it. Um, well, I do have. Okay, so I guess I have a few starter questions. I feel like it would be still valuable for us to kind of do what we normally do yeah. and maybe talk about first viewings Definitely. and where we were, where we were both were coming from. But then mm-hmm. I want to know why you chose this for your class out of all the movies. Yeah. You know, you can't, you only have a semester with these right. kids. You can only right. show, I, I mean, what do you show? One, yeah. Like five or six movies yeah. that you talk about? Mm-hmm. And this is one of them. It made the right. cut. Yes. So that's definitely a question I have is why this movie? And I know mm-hmm. because it's philosophy and film, then we should get into like, I'm assuming it has something to do with some philosophical yes, argument or point that you're making. Yeah, um, it does. So I guess that maybe gives the listeners sort of like at least the roadmap where we'll we'll start from. Uh-huh. All right. So, you know, what was your first viewing? What was your, this is 2007. Yeah, 2007. So we would have been like just out of college. Yeah, kind I was, of? Yeah, I was just out of college. Yeah. I, it would have been, it was like November probably mm-hmm. around then when it came out. Yeah, it was like, it was in that clump of movies that comes yeah, out the Oscar for push, Oscar buzz. Right. So it, yeah, it was definitely like that sort of. I want to say like around Thanksgiving or post Thanksgiving ish time. Was I remember I was still working at Barnes and Noble at the time, and um, I was working like an afternoon shift at Barnes and Noble. So I went and saw No Country for Old Men by myself in the morning oh my at the wow. theater, and then I went to work straight from the movie. <laughs> Were you stunned? Were you just kind yeah, of yeah? I really was. Like, yeah. like I I remember just kind of looking around work and saying. I, I I think I asked everybody I saw who I worked with, not customers, like, have you seen it yet? Because I needed yeah. to talk about it. I was going to say, it would be hard, I think. This would be one of those rare movies where I think it would be hard to just watch it by yourself and not have someone to kind of like bounce it off. Even if it's just, I don't even know if I like that. Yeah. Or like, I don't know what to make of that. I'm not even sure I like, like, I just feel like you need to have somebody. To yeah. That. I remember just being like, that was something special, but I really don't know yeah. what I saw. And the more I watch it, the harder it is for me to remember what was so disorienting about it to me. But I think one of the big things is that it is not a movie you expect it to be. And it doesn't tell you that until it's borderline too late. And once you have once you've realized that, you're pretty much an hour and fifteen in. <laughs> And you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't think I was paying attention to the right stuff. Yep. I know exactly what you mean. And then it ends and you're left like, wait, what story resolved there? Right. Because it feels like none of them. So I just, I remember one, knowing it was special, that it was very good. Two, not knowing what it was doing. And three, giving the Coens the benefit of the doubt and saying like, they they probably are doing something I'm missing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that was my very first viewing. Mine, in some ways, is very similar. I did see it in the theater right when it came out, and I had al- I was already a pretty big Coen Brothers fan. Right. Um, and in fact, the person I saw it with, I went with uh, Tim Yoder, mm. who um, was on our podcast for our Big Lebowski episode. If you right. want to go back, so I had a great person to go see it with because mm-hmm. Tim is the, one of the most thoughtful intelligent guys you will meet uh, but the theater there wasn't that many people in there uh, yeah. i don't know if it was just because we went on like a weeknight at like maybe it was too late or something like that but um we watched it and i'm i'm you know we were both i could tell just really glued to it mm-hmm. and yeah i mean we were we were laughing in parts um but we were laughing at really dark things yeah. and so i think we were probably like oftentimes the only people laughing in the theater and you know what that's like where it's right. just kind of like Okay, I thought that was funny, but maybe we shouldn't. Isn't that supposed to be funny? (laughs) Um, And you're right. I mean, I think we both just realized like there there gets to be a point in the movie where even more than where you were already at, you're just like, what the heck is going on? Yeah. And then there's the ending. Yeah. And kind of like Tommy Lee Jones at the beginning, I'm like, I don't know what to make of that. Yeah. I sure do don't. (laughs) I sure do don't. (laughs) You know, I think afterwards, I at least had the benefit of being able to talk to Tim for a few minutes. Yeah. I mean, we didn't like go get coffee afterwards or anything, but we were both like, yeah, that was really good. 
but man, I don't know what to make of this thing, yeah. you know? Um, and then, but the more I thought about it, the more it sat with me okay. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I really like what it did. Yeah. But, you know, I didn't go see it in the theater again. So it had been months before I watched it again, but I did buy it on DVD as soon as it came out. And I did watch it again. And I, I'm, I, I kind of see what you mean where it's like, it is a movie that I think definitely rewards multiple viewings because if you can watch it again, already knowing what's going to happen, you're able to soak in so yeah. much more because you're not just trying to follow what's going on, which is what a thriller does, which right. is sort of how it sets itself up. Like I'm thinking like, I need to pay attention to the plot. Here. Yes. Yeah. I need to pay attention to like the cat and mouse game that's going on here. Right. And the movie just kind of says, well, that's fun to follow, but that's not really the point of the right. movie. I actually, as you're talking, I do remember, I don't remember it being funny. The first time I watched it, I don't remember really laughing at stuff. I remember it was a lot scarier and more tense than I thought it would be. Yes. I remember, oh my gosh, I remember me and Tim were both like during the scenes, like just, yeah. just we'll, to we'll get, get into it, it, but like when the light bulb yeah, goes off. Yeah, when the light bulb goes off. Oh I've never, like, <laughs> we, so we were both, I remember, I just remember he- hearing Tim go, <laughs> yeah i know but then at the same time being like that's brilliant yes like that is brilliant such good filmmaker and such good filmmaker i also remember just thinking it was so dark yeah like the ending i was like it can't be that dark like it can't be saying what it felt like it was saying so yeah i i those those were two thought two very clear thoughts that i remember having like that was a really scary movie and that was a really dark movie mm-hmm. which it's still it can be a very scary movie, but I, I I've changed a little bit on the darkness. Yeah, part. Of I think it. if you if you ask us like first time around, what do we find funny? The Ed Tom Bell, the Tommy Lee Jones character, the his reactions to the stuff the deputy says, yes, are so funny. Yeah. You know, hell's bells. They even shot the dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And it was uh, just some of the. And this yeah. is something I know we need to get into, but like I just love the dialogue of this movie. Yes, and the dialogue in certain scenes was what to me was like giving us permission to laugh. It's yeah, not. It's not definitely. what. It's not what they were saying. It's how they're saying it. Yeah. Where I'm just like that is just I find that funny. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and the scene where looking for a man who has recently drunk milk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> And the 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 beginning interaction with uh, Llewellyn and Carla Jean, like the you know that'll be the day, yeah. you know that kind of stuff. Keep it up, <laughs> yeah. That is the stuff that like we were supposed to laugh at, and we were laughing at. Yeah. And then there's other stuff that I don't think I found funny until maybe on like the third watch. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Which uh, speaking of, like I I really haven't watched this movie nearly as much as you have. Uh-huh. I watched it again a couple years ago, mm-hmm. and then again for the rewatch here so i don't know if it needs to go even said but for me this has always been a five-star movie i mean i should say like maybe not right after the first viewing but even after thinking about it for a few days yes this is one very clear definition of a five-star movie for me yeah yeah because it's masterful in like every way possible every way possible and then on top of that especially if you keep if you watch it a few times, it just becomes an enjoyable watch, yep. even. Mm-hmm. which is for someone who's maybe only seen it once might sound kind of crazy. The more I watch <laughs> it, the more fun I think this movie is. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. So I've seen it, you know, well over 20 times. And uh, it was interesting. I was never not going to watch it for the episode, but I could have done this without rewatching it. But I'm I'm glad I did, not only because that's what we do and I wouldn't have been, felt very good about myself if I hadn't rewatched it. But um, I haven't rewatched it like this in a long time, mm-hmm. like with my notebook out, kind of just reacting to it. Yeah. For one thing, I usually watch it in 20 Chunk, to 30 chunks. minute chunks. Yeah. So watching it all together was a really fun experience. I was I was like, oh, this movie moves so fast. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It glides really well. Yeah. Yeah. And I watch it and gauge my student reactions. I have to, you know, like I'll have to stop it depending on when I feel like, okay, I need to kind of pause it and do some summarizing or just making checking in and making sure we're all here we all know what's going on and um so i I just i realized rewatching it just for myself and for our discussion that i watch it very differently when i watch it with my students you don't have your like air compressor stun gun uh you know uh (laughs) just for the surround sound of it (laughs) no i don't um well just as like a you know a a teaching aid. Oh, right. Like, this yeah. is how it works. Yeah. You know, <laughs> put your, put your finger here. here. Now go stand behind this lock. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Catch it. Um, no. Yeah. 
but I also felt free because Kelsey wasn't really watching it with me. She was doing some other stuff and she was kind of in and out. I felt free to just talk along with the movie. Like mm. I could quote most of this movie. Oh, that's, yeah, that's um, great. It was like a um, Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> <laughs> no country for showing. Rocky where just like show. Where, where I kind of sang along to all my favorite lines. Yeah. And there's also very few scenes in this movie that are not funny. I think. I mean, yeah, I everybody mean, loves the coin toss scene. Like, there's this masterpiece of suspense. I see it as a masterpiece of comedy. It's pretty funny. It is. The more you watch it, it you know what's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. the dialogue again. Yes. And, and, well, and, and the, the casting. The casting yes. is so good yes. in every okay. single so role. So we'll, we'll have to get into, I guess we'll just have to get into it. Then we can start there. The One of the things that tells you how good this movie is, is every tiny character is perfect the manager of the trailer park he lives in oh my gosh she's my favorite she is my favorite i think i wrote she might be the only one that kind of puts sugar in his place she is she really is she's (laughs) the one the only one who he doesn't refuses to break the rules yeah i love that woman yes sir i'm looking for llewellyn moss did you go up to his trailer yes i did well, I'd say he's at work. Do you want to leave a message? Where does he work? I can't say. Where does he work? Sir, I ain't at liberty to give out no information about our residence. Where does he work? Did you not hear me? We can't give out no information. She is brilliant. Mm-hmm. And the other, the hotel manager, yeah. who... Yeah, we got it. We had a sort of one when he's looking for a map of the hotel. <laughs> it's got two double beds. They're just, they know how to cast or whoever. I mean, they don't cast. They have, they have a casting director. And again, we should give credit to where right. credit is due. So Kathy Lampkin is the name of the actor who plays the manager at the trailer park. And then Margaret Bowman is the Del Rio Motel clerk. Uh, another one of my favorite um, small characters of which I mean, you've got, of course, the gas station proprietor played by Gene Jones, um, and then the chicken farmer, by mm. uh, played by Richard Jackson. Yeah. Oh my gosh, such a great character! You're from around here. You're Alpine, born and bred. Here you go. What airport would you use? Well, airport or airstrip? Airport. Well, where are you going? I don't know. Just lighting out for the territories, huh? Brother, I've been there. Well, I also want to give credit where credit is due. Ellen Chenoweth is the casting director for No Country, and she's done a lot of Cullen Brothers movies. Oh, okay. So my she knows goodness. what they're looking she for. Yeah, she, like, yeah. The, I mean, it's just unbelievable. They're just so fun to watch. Well, and they're just so real. They're real. Yeah. So I guess that that might kind of get yeah, into like what we think of is like how masterful this movie is. Yes. And, and I think that goes back to our original viewings and kind of knowing like, we're going to give them the benefit of the doubt because it's just a masterful made it. movie. Yeah. Based on a novel by a masterful writer. Right. But nonetheless, kind of confusing, yeah. especially the first time you watch it. Mm-hmm. So I guess let's kind of pull back a little bit. And now I'll go back to my other question, right. which is so, so why this movie and how are you approaching it with your students? Well, yeah, this was actually one of the first movies on my list when I was thinking of the course, I kind of was like, well, I need to find a place for no country for old men. And I used to teach the first like two times I taught the class, I did the problem of evil and it just didn't work really well. But I kind of thought, Oh, no country for old men could be a little bit problem of evil just because she grows so evil. And I like, there was no point in putting in an ethics because it's like, well, nobody's doing the right thing in this movie. Um, but uh, then I I kind of paired the problem of evil with existentialism and like meaning of life, and I don't go into nihilism deeply in my class, but I kind of tie nihilism to existentialism, and so I really teach this movie as an existential movie. The idea of nothing has been given meaning, so you live your life according to what you think is meaningful. You assign meaning to things by doing them. And if you don't do them because they're meaningful, then you're not living like a meaningful life. You're not making kind of good choices. And there's there's different ways of looking at existentialism. You've got like Elder Camus, who was an absurdist and was like, yeah, nothing matters. I can reinvent myself every day. 
and he kind of felt like sort of a freedom, like a liberation in that. Then you've got like Jean-Paul Sartre. I don't ever know how to say his name. I don't speak French. Sartre. Sartre. He um, on this podcast, it's Sartre. 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 <laughs> and he uh, maybe we should say it like a Texan. I don't know how to text this. Sartre. Sartre. <laughs> he he felt like this burden of that that like I have to choose meaning. I have to. I'm forced to choose meaning. I can't float through life anymore. Now everything I do is me saying this is what a meaningful life looks like. Because if we could back this up a little bit, so your broad definition of existentialism, which I think you kind of sort of glided over just now, is oh, is, is is how would you define that? Nothing has a set meaning. Like nobody has a set purpose in life, and so you aren't living your life looking for that. You're living your life creating that. Mm. So everything you do, you should do because it's meaningful to human existence. It's meaning, it creates a meaningful life. And so for Sartre, it was, there was this heavy burden because I can't just, you know, buy my food because it saves me money. I have to think about everything else. Do I want every human being to do what I'm about to do, basically? He said, you had to invest everything with the idea that this is what I'm calling a meaningful life. Hmm. Basically under that is like, you can, you can never kind of go on autopilot. Exactly. You have to like think very intensely about every single decision exactly. you make because yeah. you're bringing meaning to that. Right. And if you go on autopilot, then you are letting meaning be defined for you, which there's no meaning out there. <laughs> so you're just living a meaningless life. Because there is no meaning to life outside of the choices that you make right. and what you do. Yeah. And you, you can't say that something is meaningful to you without doing it. So the, the positive side of that is if you don't like who you are, stop doing that. Be something else. You know, if you feel like, oh, I'm the way he, he, he talks about like the, a cowardly person versus a heroic person. If you think, oh, I'm just such a cowardly person. I was born cowardly. You know, it's in my blood. It's in my genes to be cowardly. If you think that way, then you never have to own it. But if you look at it from an existentialist perspective, you say, no, you're a coward because you've been acting like a coward. Now, the good thing is you can stop doing that. If you don't like it, do something different. Because mm -hmm. it's all about the actions. Yes. Yeah. You can't get credit. If you say, oh, I really value generosity, but only once I make enough money to sort of do that. You, you don't get credit for valuing it and not doing yeah, it. Yeah, intellectually valuing right. it exactly. without actually doing anything to live it out. Right. Yeah. And so there's sort of like a nihilist component to that, that like, well, everything is meaningless and, you know, everything's socially constructed. So nothing I do matters. Yeah. And existentialist says kind of the opposite, says, no, everything you do matters mm. because nothing is meaningful. It's, would you call it two sides to the same coin? <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> a little bit. Um, and so, yeah, you've got Shigur who kind of sees the meaninglessness because another thing that like, especially an absurdist existentialist would look at is the social constructions of meaning. Like, why is small talk meaningful? Like, are we having this conversation about the weather where I'm from because you actually care about the weather where I'm from? Or is that just something you're saying? And if it's something you're saying, then I don't want a part of it. That's not meaningful. And Shigur is someone who looks at the social constructions and knows they're meaningless, and he uses that against people. Hmm. He knows people will play into those meaningless social constructions, so he can predict them constantly. He knows, Which is kind of what's happening in that scene with the gas station. Exactly, exactly. Like exactly what's happening. It's exactly what's happening. You can actually <laughs> see him sort of switch into like... I know how he's going to respond. I I'm know going how he's to, I'm going to use yeah. this in this situation. It really does show how pointless like the social convention of small talk is or how weird it is. Y'all getting any rain up here, Wayne? What way would that be? I've seen you was from Dallas. What business is it of yours? Where I'm from? Friendo? I didn't mean nothing by it. Didn't mean nothing. Just passing the time. If you don't want to accept that, I don't know what else I can do for you. Wanna be something else? I don't know. Will there? Is something wrong? With what? With anything. Is that what you're asking me? 
Is there something wrong with anything? Will there be anything else? You already asked me that. Oh, well, I need to see about closing now. See about closing? Yes, sir. What time do you close? Now, we close now. No, it's not a time. What time do you close? Generally around dark, at dark. You don't know what you're talking about, do you? Sir? I said, you don't know what you're talking about. And my favorite line from this exchange is, is there something wrong with anything? Is that what you're asking me? And it's, it's again, one of those things that sort of rings true. That like Small talk is this dumb thing where asking someone, is there something wrong with anything, makes sense in that world. But that's such an insane <laughs> question. Like you and, Like, they didn't know each other for more than the couple minutes they'd been there. And he's asking this question that is actually super deep. And then Shigur... You can kind of see him turn, and it's it's when he realizes that he married into it. Like, he has been on autopilot, right? Yeah, Which is right. a major sin for Shigur. And then he starts asking small talk questions, but the answer suddenly is really important. You live in that house out back? What time do you go to bed? Like, you could absolutely hear those things in small talk, but now you've got a guy asking you in this way. Right. I, I, when someone really wants to know the answer to those questions, it's scary. It's like, why, why are do you, you asking me that? <laughs> that's true. Yeah. And that's why Shigur is so unpredictable and scary because he holds to no social conventions. Nothing that he does is predictable because he has jettisoned the meaning of anything that we would consider to be appropriate human behavior. Right. He's unpredictable, but he also is very knowledgeable of yeah. all of these social constructs. Yeah, right. He knows all of them. Right. And then you've got Tom, Ed Tom Bell, who is looking for meaning everywhere and not finding it and is really troubled by that because he felt like there used to be meaning. Mm-hmm. And now he's kind of having that existential crisis of like, Everything that felt meaningful is slipping away and it doesn't have the positive effect that I thought it did have. So now that's his obsession with older, what would the older generation say about this? You know, they didn't even used to have to carry guns, like all these, Mm -hmm. all these sorts of like looking back at the traditions and the conventions of olden times. Nostalgia. Right. Even though, like they say, what you got ain't ain't new. new. It's like, but that is nostalgia. It's this pining for a time that in your mind was there. It's a romanticization of a a thing that was there. Mm -hmm. Probably was never really there to begin with. Right. And that he has created the meaning in. Like, he finds that so meaningful. Because it can, I mean, as we talk about nostalgia all the time on this podcast, it can feel really good and bring meaning to to things. And so they are, they're, they're kind of the opposite sides of this, that... Shigur sees the meaningless in all of it and leans in and says, I'm going to call bullshit on all that meaning and I'm going to do what I want to do. Now, I don't know that he's a good existentialist. I don't know that he is constructing meaning in his life, but he is definitely living outside of the socially constructed meanings. And Ed Tom is desperately looking for those conventions to still have meaning in the face of this world that is increasingly exposing the meaninglessness of all that stuff. And that's why, to my mind, he's always at least a murderer or two behind. He is never on the right, right crime yeah. scene. In fact, that's one of the things that's sort of confusing about the movie. The first time you watch it is like his deputy or his secretary will talk to him about a murder that was 20 minutes ago. And then you've got Llewellyn, who's in the middle, and it sort of seems like he's been on autopilot. And then when he does make a choice, it's to follow that dog, and then it's to take the money. And he has set his meaning then, you know? Like, money is what's meaningful yeah. to him. Although I would say he makes another choice, which is to actually... To go back. To go back. Uh-huh. It brings to him an empathy as a viewer. Yeah. You have an empathy for him. He's not all bad. He's not even all right. selfish. Right, right, right. Because right. he makes a choice. You know, he actually goes back, and that action kind of what sets him off it course is. the whole time it is yeah it wasn't necessarily the taking of the money the taking the money he probably could have gotten away with 
for a, for a while, for yeah, a, while. a lot a lot quicker than he did. And, yeah, he I mean, had, it had the transponder in yeah. it still, so Sugar probably would have found him eventually. But, but yeah, if he had if he had just gone and taken the money and started spending it, he would have actually probably found the transponder fairly quickly. Yeah, that's true. So there's one there's a I think there's a couple ways you could look at that that like no good deed goes unpunished or like he he shouldn't have gone back to do the right thing. And what we're talking about, if you don't remember, is he wakes up in the middle of the night and decides to take water back to the one person who survived the the, the, fr- the, fracas, the drug deal gone wrong the fracas they yeah. call it yeah and when he goes back then he is found by the cartel and they they get his they his get VIN his number, number you yeah. know so like there's right. a lot of people who know exactly who took this money right. because of that deed right <laughs> that was supposed to be altruistic and good but another you know? way you could look at it is that he had the cho- chance to choose a truly meaningful act yeah and didn't and then he was on a course, or as he says it, things happened and I can't take them back. Right, yeah. Like, you, he didn't take seriously his role in creating meaning in his life. He didn't want to give that person water and he wanted to take the money. He chose the wrong meaning for his life. And that set him on the course. So that's basically the framework for it. Like, you've kind of got three approaches to existentialism. Somebody who is fighting the idea of existentialism by trying to find meaning in everything that has felt good to him before somebody who totally gave up on the idea of meaning and somebody who's trying to have it both ways and we kind of see that it doesn't work out for any of them right Hmm. don't you feel like i feel like in sugar you've got where he wants to believe in a certain level of determinism and what i mean by that is because there's a in the carla jean scene of course the the most famous line everyone knows is the coin ain't got no say Mm mm-hmm but there's a part right before that where she she says you don't have to do this and mm-hmm. he says everyone always says that you don't have to do this and to me that's like isn't that kind of the existential question like it's your action you don't have to do this right. like if you would just choose not to do this mm-hmm. you can do that mm-hmm. you can choose not to do this you are saying you are the one who is saying mm-hmm. that there is something predetermined about this right. you know yeah yeah and that's where there's like that inconsistency in sugar yeah and it's interesting that he does the coin toss thing. The first time you could kind of see it as him taunting or playing with the guy. Yeah. But then when you see Carla Jean, she sees it for what it is, which is him not taking responsibility for right. a certain action. He knows that killing that person is at best unnecessary. And so he brings the coin in to absolve him of the choice. Mm-hmm. But I always think that scene with Carla Jean is really fascinating because is it the lighting? Is it actually what's happening? But he looks like he's tearing up. Yeah, I. F- this is how I interpret it, mm-hmm. is that she is pointing out that whether he wants to or not, he has to take responsibility for yeah. what he does. Mm-hmm. You gave your word to my husband to kill me? Your husband had the opportunity to save you. Instead, he used you to try to save himself. like that. Not like you say. You don't have to do this. People always say the same thing. What do they say? They say, you don't have to do this. You don't. Okay. This is the best I can do. Call it. I know you was crazy when I saw you sitting there. I know exactly what was in store for me. Call it. No. I ain't gonna call it. Call it. The coin don't have no say. It's just you. Well, I got here the same way the coin did. He respects Carla Jean because she isn't trying to wriggle out of it. She's not trying to make excuses for herself. She's calling out how Shigur is making excuses for himself. But then he says to Carson earlier, when Carson's trying to bargain his way out of it, he says you should admit your situation there would be more dignity in it and 
there is something true to that that like you have to you have to admit where you are mm-hmm. and admit that you got yourself there Llewellyn he crossed the point of no return Carson crossed the point of no return so live your life so that you can always feel comfortable accepting your situation and if your rules lead you to a place where you can't comfortably accept your situation then what what use was that rule and strange to say Shigeru's right well i think i just don't think he's 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 applying it incorrectly <laughs> well i think what's maybe disturbing about this movie is that i think when you're watching it even in a lot of ways you can find yourself saying sugar is not wrong about this mm-hmm. and you need someone like carla jean to kind of just say like it ain't like that right and maybe th- this is putting interpretation where I don't necessarily know the Coen brothers are meaning to do this in the movie, but like it might even just be illustrating the shortcomings of philosophy. Mm. Like philosophy yeah. itself can be a thought process. Yeah. It can be a way of making sense of the world. It can be, a, yeah. And it can be like a way of like, well, in this situation, this yeah. is what you should do. And right. this is what you yeah. have to do. Yeah. Yeah. And according to this person, this is what you do. And that's why there is no one philosophical system mm-hmm. that makes sense of everything. Right. Because it's all got its shortcomings. And they're all kind of living by their own sort of philosophies. But it takes someone like a Carla Jean to just be like, yeah, but it ain't That's like that. That's not true. Yeah. And, but, but it will get you pretty far. Yeah. You know, yeah. like it'll get you pretty yeah. far to have a way of looking at the world. Right. You know, as long as you can take it and understand yeah. that in certain situations, that way it just ain't going to work. Right. You know. And the, the, the exact way she puts it is not like that. Not like you say. Yeah. And... That is interesting that it's not, that's not true or, you know, but saying, all right, yes, logically, you could, you could could say say that that that's what he did, but it's not like you say. Yep. And logically, yes, our social conventions are meaningless. Yes, you can live outside of them. And yes, you can philosophize your way that human life is meaningless, that you can do what you want. You can flip a coin and say it's not your fault. That's not true, though. That's not like yeah. you say. Now, what's interesting, and maybe you saw this, they changed that from the book. In the book, she calls it wrong. I, I haven't read the book. <clears throat> I'm sure you've read the book. It's on, yeah, I have. Yeah. It's incredibly faithful. There are a lot of things that they cut. Like, you hear a lot more from Shigur in the book. But one of the things that they changed, and I think it's vital that they changed it, was the Carla Jean scene. In the book, she calls it and gets it wrong, and he kills her. And... In the movie, she refuses to. And you see that, that you've got that brilliant moment with Shigur sort of having to face the fact that he has been breaking his own rules or at least lying to himself. And I said kind of early on that the three views on existentialism, like it doesn't really work out for any of them. It might be less satisfying than people want it to be. But I do think that ultimately the movie falls on the side of Ed Tom yeah, and says like of the ways to view the world believing in goodness is the way to go (laughs) it's going to be hard and you're going to feel like at times that there is no country for you and you might feel stupid for believing in goodness but it's still the way to go i think it's it's kind of it's where the movie kind of leans i don't think it falls on that I don't think it like where I here's my spells inter- that out. This is my interpretation of it. And this is maybe where we get into more of just sort of like our 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 normal type of conversation about mm-hmm. just what we thought of the movie or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. I think the movie leans on the side of it's probably a good thing to have some kind of even idea of goodness that also sort of springs into a view of hope for mm-hmm. the future. But I think the movie is saying you need to be cautious about what that looks like. And, yeah. and, and in a way that you need to... You can't be naive. No, you can't be naive. And you also, when you're talking about how the world just isn't like it used to be or the world isn't as good as it, what it used to be, what kind of things are you focusing on? Mm-hmm. One of the things I think is so funny and reminds me so much of... You know, this is our podcast. We can say what we want. The people who fall for the MAGA routine. Yeah. And the idea of like making the country great again, mm-hmm. going back to this time. It's that vague Ed Tom Bell thing of yeah. like, this is what the olden days used to look like. And we just don't have them anymore. Right. I don't know what to make of this world. Ed Tom Bell, I think, is coming at it from a much more foundational viewpoint. But then you've got that guy he has in the diner talking. And the things he points out are like, Kids with bones in their noses and green hair. Yeah. And that's the MAGA crowd to me. You are focusing on the wrong things that are driving this country to the ground. What Ed Tom Bell is talking about is things like greed and things like 
debased, pointless evil. And then the other person he talks to in the wheelchair basically says, yeah, it's that always been this way. That ain't new. <laughs> yeah. That stuff ain't new. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know what I mean? Like, is that for sure? So that scene with that other sheriff, Ed Tom, it's the most wrong headed we see him, I think. Yeah. Because he agrees with him. Right. He does. And yeah. that's sort of Ed Tom believing in the meaningfulness of social conventions. And I think ultimately the movie is, it's not, it's not commenting on this, but I think it is saying there are things that are meaningless in our world, but there are also things that are meaningful and don't get it twisted. Right. And that, that conversation with the sheriff is definitely them getting it twisted. Like he says, if you would have told me I'd see teenagers with green hair and bones in their noses. But then Ed Tom says, I think when you stopped hearing sir and ma'am, right. Yep. He believes in those social conventions yes, too. He does. Yeah. But even that, like, it's clearly dissatisfying to him because, I mean, then they say it's not the one thing, it's the dismal tide. And that makes the phrase, no country for old men, seem almost self-pitying when I think that there is sort of like a, a more, maybe I'm, I don't know, it, it, it makes it feel self-pitying there. I don't know that there is like a, a more positive way to say that there's no country for old men. Well, there is something to be said for those who kind of look back even if it's to a nostalgia that never really existed. The surface level stuff of that is probably not really something even necessarily worth striving towards. Yeah. But it's coming from a core. And even when, and, and, and we'll just say old men because that's what the title of the movie is. Yeah. And that's what they're kind of like, that's sort of the metaphor they're moving with. But like when you think of like those who pine for a past or who think of the old timers and have a respect for the people who came before them. Mm-hmm. That's coming from a place of, I think, deep humanity yeah. and wanting to feel connected to some core level of mm-hmm. goodness yeah. that was always there in humanity and that they could see in the older generations and they're having a harder time seeing it now. And there's something I think that deserves some compassion and empathy for those who are struggling to see it right now. Yeah. And that's kind of like the function, I believe, of the man he talks to at the end. Ellis, yeah. El- is that his name? Ellis, you know, is... To kind of say, like, those feelings that you're having, like, mm-hmm. they're not a bad thing to want mm-hmm. for humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, but also don't go thinking that what you're feeling is something new. Yeah. And that there was some time where everybody was just the way you want it to be now. Right. Because that never was there. Yeah. And I think that's part of the dream sequence, too. That, like, it's his father in the dream mm-hmm. with the fire and the horn. But that fire and the horn is that thing that we all yeah. are hoping someone is there carrying forward. Right. What's, again, I think where you're never going to get off easy with a Coen Brothers movie, it's the same reason you're never going to get off easy in a Spike Lee film. Yeah. Wake up. Yeah. <laughs> it's the idea of like what you're wanting isn't necessarily a bad thing, but you need to wake up. Yeah. You can't wish for it and not do something about it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because in that moment, he's retired. He, he's kind of given up. Yeah. And that's when he has this dream. Yeah. There's a lot that you just, that I want to respond oh, to. <laughs> like, I don't know where our listeners are at at this yeah, point. <laughs> we don't know if this is clarifying anything about the movie. But Ellis, I love him because he is interestingly more knowledgeable about the past than yeah. Ed Tom. Ed Tom has to ask him what happened to the, our uncle or to, to my yeah. uncle. And when was that? The date. Yeah. And, and he's the one who remembers more clearly. And he took that uncle's gun and badge to a museum, right? So he's, he is also commemorating and, and knows the importance of the past and, and sort of like memorializing it. But he also is honest about it. Like that time you're talking about, he died on his porch. Yeah. He got shot and died in front of his wife on on, on his porch. He's the one who calls out the self-pitying yep. nature of No Country for Old Men. When did he die? 1909. Uh, oh, I mean, was it right away or in the night or when was it? I believe it was that night. She buried him the next morning digging in that hard old caliche. What you got ain't nothing new. This country's hard on people. You can't stop what's coming. 
They ain't all waiting on you. That's vanity. And like to call out the way that Ed Tom is cert- is is expecting meaning to be given to him hmm. and saying, I figured God would show up and come into my life. You know, I figured meaning would show up. Somebody yeah. would create Something meaning would make for sense me. Of this. Yeah. And he says, oh, you don't know what he thinks. And he's sort of chastising him for retiring. Yeah. Like you can't think it's all hanging on you and give up. That's vanity. Yep. It didn't turn out the way you wanted. It isn't the way you thought it was. You're being vain right now. So I do want to talk about one scene, just sort of in a traditional can we still be friends way that still mm-hmm. confuses me. Okay. And it's when Tom Bell seems like he's going to face off. With yeah. Shit. Because they do everything cinematically to have you believe that he was in that room. Mm-hmm. And he's just not. Yeah. Right. But like, there's a lot going on in that scene. Like he is on the other side of that door. You kind of see his reflection mm-hmm. from the lock. Even when he goes in, he sees the register. And the reason you know it was sugar that took it off is because the coin's there. Mm -hmm. And the window is latched, locked. So he didn't escape out the window. Right. And it shows the whole room. And it's just like, what's going on there? Yeah. I I don't know either. Because there's no way he got out the vent. Right. It's a tiny little hole. There's no way he just hid somewhere. And then got out the front door when he... Right. Well, maybe. I mean, maybe. I he, mean, it's possible he hopped on the other side of the bed, and then when we went in the bathroom, he went in. But like the view they give of the room is pretty comprehensive. I would be that's that's the most likely way he would get out through the front door. But that calls for a suspension of disbelief that that hasn't been called for yeah. in the movie. So, if listeners, if you're not watching the scene, yeah. this is where Ed Tom Bell is actually approaching the hotel room where Llewellyn was where murdered. Llewellyn was murdered. And he knows it's that. And the, the, the lock has been busted out the same way that Sugar has busted out every lock before. Mm-hmm. And then the camera actually cuts to Sugar like waiting inside the, room. inside the room in the darkness and seeing the same light coming through that hole. Mm-hmm. So it's very clear. And you can even see from Tom Bell's perspective, he looks in and sees the metal reflection in it. Mm-hmm. He can kind of see that there's somebody on the other side of the room. There. Right. And you can see Shigur can see Tom too, And there's a little slightly. bit, the only time there's a little bit of time there is when he kind of takes a deep breath and decides to pull out his gun, mm-hmm. you know, and then he goes in and Open the room's empty. Door, yeah. There's a, so, and I, there's, think, there's sort I of, think he's in the room. I think he was definitely on the other side of that door. But there are also things that happen that have happened throughout the movie. You hear the sound of wind blowing. And that happens a few times throughout the movie where people go to listen to something or go to look at something or the only sound is like wind whistling slightly. Mm -hmm. And it's not a place where wind would be whistling like that. It's sort of like a moment people have with the abyss. (laughs) And it's usually, it usually involves Shigur. Like when, and this is a scene I definitely want to talk about, the hotel room scene, which is one of the most masterful Suspense. suspense scenes yeah Llewellyn puts his ear to the door at the bottom of the door and all he hears is wind mm-hmm. whistling but, and again masterful on every level sound design in this movie yeah. is insane it's unbelievable yeah. I've never seen a movie use quiet yeah better yeah even the quiet place didn't use quiet as well as this movie did <laughs> yeah I, I would say the same yeah and the same sound is heard when Ed Tom is kind of looking at that lock and so I think that thematically Ed Tom is kind of pushing his chips in and saying, okay, I'll be a part of this world. Mm-hmm. You know, he's looking at this abyss. He's doing, that's the part that that's where he's pushing his chips into something he doesn't understand. Yeah. And then he opens the door and it's this sort of like, well, you get the reflection on the TV, which comes well, there's up quite that. a bit. There's that. But then his shadow is just kind of like split, but he's just a shadow. Like all we see is his shadow in the room Ed Tom's shadow. And I, so I think that there's sort of like this, he decides to push his chips in, but he's not who he thought he was. Mm-hmm. Like that he can't be the man he thought he was. Right. And I Which think the man he thought he was might be like, I feel like when he busts in, busts in, there's the, the shadow sort of on the TV. And well, I, I want to say the shadow, it's him and his hat and everything. Mm-hmm. Like it's the most, it's like, like a very cowboy, it's the most Western cowboy sheriff coming into the gun, saloon. His guns gun, up. Yeah. His yep. guns up kind of look. Yeah. You know? But it's just this fragmented shadow. So that like, it's kind of the shattering of that mythology. Right. 
the and, entire American Western mythology right. being shattered in one scene in No Country right. for Old Men. <laughs> Where, and, so, and then that's kind of the last scene we see of him as a police officer, really. That's true, yeah. And so, sure, like, obviously it's like, well, what happened to Shigeru, especially if you're expecting a showdown? which you never get in this movie. You no. never get a showdown. That's going to really bother you. But then that's where you have to say, what what is the movie they're showing me versus the movie I thought I was watching? And you've got that thematic, like he pushed his chips in, but maybe it was too little too late, or maybe he was still relying on that old Western stance that and yeah. it's just in pieces and it's not going to work anymore. But I've always had that. I, I don't have an answer to that. Yeah, I, And I, I think that's fine i think that's kind of good to not have an answer to that because something else i talk about with my students because a lot of times they're very frustrated with this movie usually they really like it this one usually rates as highest at the end of the semester Mm -hmm. like which one was the the most helpful movie for us to or the most interesting or helpful movie to to explore philosophy and they, they usually rate this one pretty highly but sometimes they get really frustrated with it and I think that there's a level of the Coen brothers being, I don't know about nihilistic or existentialist, I would say existentialist to be generous to them, with filmmaking conventions. So we've got characters who are looking at meaning in social conventions. The Coen brothers are ch- sort of challenging us as an audience looking for meaning in filmmaking and mm-hmm. storytelling conventions yeah. by showing us a Western, like Texas Drawl, Tommy Lee Jones opening with like all these views and everything like okay we've got this is a western i know how this is gonna go and then at every turn taking away what we would expect to happen and so you've got llewellyn's gonna survive you know like he's the guy we watched from the beginning so he's gonna do fine sugar is the bad guy he's gonna lose there's gonna be some showdown carson wells is introduced like okay now we've got this other character and even their relationship is like oh this is really a little bit of friction but you know that they're going to be because it's kind of funny this is going to be a good team up uh so it's good so now Llewellyn's got Carson on his side and Ed Tom's going to show up for that showdown too and it'll be uh Anton outmatched and we know how that's going to go and then Carson is killed within five or seven minutes of being introduced Mm -hmm. Llewellyn never squares off against Shigur. The one time that you could call it that, they never even see each other clearly in the hotel room scene. And then on the street afterwards, they never really see each other. And then Ed Tom never squares off against Mm. Shigur. And Shigur gets away and Ed Tom retires. And so it's uh, the way I kind of sell it to my students is like, they're sort of asking, why would you want to see a movie you've already seen? Right. What meaning is there in telling you a story you can predict? Right. And not doing it just to be random, you know, not just saying like, well, I, oh, here's a yeah. deus ex machina. They're not replacing the conventions with other conventions. They're replacing it with questions. Like, well, I, and I, so I think there's absolutely that going on where they are questioning the conventions of genres and specifically the Western. But I think one of the ways they do that, I seeing that this time around kind of see it as, something that presents itself as a Western, but they just kind of laid a noir on top of it. In noir, you always have this protagonist that really just kind of acts out of self-interest mm-hmm. most of the time, which would be your Llewellyn Moss mm-hmm. character. And in a noir, the systems and the world itself in the movie were always going to be stacked against that character. It's right. Chinatown. Yeah, right. But it presented itself as a Western. So you didn't think that was what mm-hmm. was going to happen. But then also the world itself feels much more noir than it does anything like the West that you see in a lot of your classic Westerns. The kind of characters that it works with and the sort of world it builds feels a lot more like the dark, seedy sort of world of a noir. And I think that this is like their John Huston movie. Like this is Mm. sort of like their Treasure of the Sierra Madre meets Maltese Falcon with Mm -hmm. like the MacGuffin of the money meets... Asphalt Jungle, which is like Houston's great noir movie. And like the Sterling Hayden character is a lot like Llewellyn Moss in this movie. You know, someone who's like someone you like, someone who's easy to like, but he's still the noir character. The world is stacked against this guy. And he's still doing things that are out of self-interest and kind of shady. You know, so like there's so many things that this movie is doing to kind of challenge not just your feelings about Westerns, but maybe your feelings about other genres even too. Yeah. Like, Genres in themselves kind of build a world. 
and people subscribe to certain worlds. Like, yeah. do you subscribe to more of a Western type world or do you subscribe to a type of noir world when mm-hmm. you think about how you interpret the world? Yeah. Like when you think of how the world works around you, you think of it more in terms of how a Western works. Mm-hmm. Well, there's good, there's bad. The good's usually going to end out in the end. And it's pretty clear cut what's good and what's bad, mm-hmm. you know? Or when you look at the world around you, do you think more in terms of noir? The world is kind of shady. People make decisions mostly out of greed. People are pretty much just in it for themselves. And you got to be in it for yourselves. Money turns everybody greedy in this movie. Like the boys on the bridge and the boys with the bike. And so maybe what's confusing about this movie is it's kind of like, well, can these worlds both exist? And which one do you subscribe to? Yeah. There's also, and I've seen other people write about this, but there's the three characters. They each come from different genres of western even where you've got tommy lee jones is like the classic western mm, which like sees John Wayne. right the yeah like and high noon yep. with gary cooper, cooper cooper yeah like the vision of the american west is basically this is a good thing and any bad elements i'm gonna restore order to then you've got llewellyn who's more the revisionist western the sort of wild bunch anti-hero. Yeah. Who like... Or like the good, the bad, and the ugly sort of like Clint Eastwood character. That's just sort of like, yeah, the Civil War is going on, but that doesn't really concern me. I just need to take care of myself. The American West has a lot of rough spots to it that if you're going to succeed, you need to access some of the bad parts of yourself, but you're going to ultimately be a likable person, Mm -hmm. somebody that we can root for. And then you've got Chigurh as the neo-Western, the postmodern Western, which says the American West was awful. Yeah. The expansion was terrible. Like everything that we did, it, it, the entire it signifies the worst in humanity. Here. Yeah, exactly. And Chigurh comes in like embraces that. And now we've got all three of them. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. In the, in the same story. Well, they've got to live in the same world. Right. Living yeah. in the same world. And Tommy Lee Jones is way behind. Like he can't keep up with what's <laughs> happening. Yeah. But at the same time, Llewellyn's a little bit behind. And Chigurh is the only one who's on the front foot. And that is probably why this movie feels nihilistic to people, because the neo-Western view of America and of the American West is the dominant view. The, like in, in that, it is the view that's in control, the view we're afraid of, but the view that is around every corner. And the fact that Tommy Lee Jones gets the last word, I think, is that sort of like, yeah, Chigurh walked away. Yeah, there's no justice. Yes, randomness comes for us all, but doesn't even kill the people we we think deserve it. <laughs> yeah. um, but there's the fire in the horn. And that final scene is brilliant and fantastic. Because you've got that element of misremembering the past in that he's he's imagining his father, but his father is younger than him. And so there's like an incongruity to the way he's remembering the past. Then he even yeah he even says so in a sense I'm the older man like my father my father's the younger man and um the first dream his dad was going to give him money and he doesn't remember exactly what happened but then in that other one I knew my dad was going to be out there and all that cold and all that dark and I knew that he would be there waiting for me and like that to me is just like you've got this idea of if not hope then just purpose like okay I need to carry the light. And the cold and the dark is way more oppressive than this little light in a horn. But it means something to someone that I'm out there with it. And then I woke up, could be, that was all a dream and it's bullshit. Or it could be, and then I woke up and now I've got to decide what to do with my life in regards Mm -hmm. to that. Mm -hmm. And you've got the ticking clock, which the ticking clock could be, you're just waiting out your days. Or it could be, the clock is ticking. Get to it. You have to make your life matter now. No matter what evil is out there, you've got to make your life matter. It's a realistic view of hope to me. Yeah. So what kind of questions do you tend to ask your students? Like when the credits roll? Like what kind of reflection do you have them do afterwards? Well, I usually just ask for their like initial reactions or initial questions. Um, And then the most... um, kind of strict guidance that I, I push them towards is for lack of a better phrase, like judging how good of an existentialist each of them was hmm. like, did they actually live up to the the tenets of existentialism that we, we kind of have established earlier and point them towards how wrongheaded Shiger's approach is where Llewellyn fails and where Ed Tom fails, but then also 
I actually like what you're pointing out about Carla Jean. That's something I'm going to bring into it. Um, that like the limits of philosophy. Um, but then we kind of end by dissecting how is the movie actually kind of calling us to continue to be mm. good in the face of evil. Mm. And that's sort yeah. of, and then, and then we move into our, our ethics unit. Oh, okay. So it's kind of a, a bridge to the ethics. And what's the movie that you show for that? Uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Oh. Might be one we do another maybe, time. Maybe we'll have to see. <laughs> we'll have to see if we want to go back to class. With yeah. This well, we are next month. <laughs> we are. Yes. For our ho- holiday spooktacular. Do we want to just go straight into it? Do we want to? So, yeah. how do we want to wrap this up? So, I, I just want to. I mean, I, I guess. Uh, well, then I woke up. Fade to black. <laughs> I'm happy with that. I'm, I'm glad that we did this. This has been great. Yeah. So, to, to talk this movie. So, yeah. I, it's I mean, been fun. We don't need to talk about. I mean, it's still a five-star movie. It's yeah. still five. No, I mean, I mean so, gosh, yeah. yeah. I like it more every time I see it. All right. Well, then, yeah. Like, why don't we just go ahead right into what we're going to talk about in our next episode, yeah. Can We Still Be Friends? We're going to continue well, we're this trajectory. we're still in school. Yeah. yeah. And it's our holiday spooktacular. spooktacular. Tis, tis the, the season. Tis the season. And yeah, tis the season with a bit of a twist because we're also in school for this yeah, season. Yeah, that's right. It's back to school season. Yeah. And, and spooktacular tis the season. spooktacular season. Yeah. And so how are we going to make this work? Well, how, how I is actually, that possibly I actually work? show uh, a horror movie in my class, and that is Jordan Peele's Get Out. Ooh, we, you did it. You bridged them. I did Spectacular and back it. to school. Yeah. So this is one that I've watched a bunch of times. Uh, I, I haven't shown it all the times that I've taught. So this one's a new edition the last couple of years. But and this is ethics. This said. is truth truth okay i thought yeah. you said oh no ethics eternal was eternal sunshine, sunshine. sorry yeah. i got that mixed up this, so this is, is truth, truth and okay. some identity in it yeah okay. and uh yeah so we're gonna watch get out starring daniel kaluuya uh allison williams katherine keener i mean you're not gonna even believe this and i i shouldn't even admit it on here i've only you, seen this movie we've once. only seen it once in wow. the theater i saw wow. it loved, loved it by the wow. way wow but boy oh boy i will probably have seen it three times by the next time we talk <laughs> Just I'm, a little sh- window. I'm showing it in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Wow. And yeah. I have two classes. So you will have already seen it more times than me for our next episode, just in the span of now Between, till then. Yeah. Then I have the entire... When did the, I can't remember the year it came out. Uh, 2017, I think. 20, all right. So it hasn't been that long. No. Not super long. No. But I think this is great because uh, I, I haven't had a chance to see Nope yet. Have you seen Nope? No, I haven't seen Nope. Okay. So maybe, maybe I'll maybe try and squeeze that in before. That, yeah. And so we can kind of talk about... Maybe a little bit of that. Bring that in a little bit. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. No I've only promises. seen us once. Yeah, same, same. But yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna watch Get Out, and uh, it's a spooky it's, one. Yeah, the chills will be present. They will. Yeah, hopefully the chills will be spilling, and the spine tingling will be uh, vibrational. Yeah. Tingles. Sure. I don't know. Yeah. No, you're good with words. All the. Yeah, I'm. Yeah. You're a just, wordsmith. <laughs> So uh, watch that with us, or I mean, not with us, probably. Not in the same room. Yeah. I mean, we don't. If Kelsey's do listening screenings. to this, she'll probably yeah. watch it with me. Right. If, uh, if my well, students are listening, they'll watch they might, it with me. Yeah. There you go. Any any of uh, Mr. Ebling's students, watch it with him. Do yeah. not fall asleep in class. Oh man, they fall asleep during Get Out. I don't know what to do. Yeah. Exactly. I say Get yeah. Out. <laughs> you you watch Get Out or you get out. That's right. One or the I other. I couldn't be more clear. It's one or the other. Get out or, <laughs> or get, get out. <laughs> you choose. I like this. This is how the back to school spooktacular really melds together. Yeah. You get the, the, you get the classroom my, discipline. At my class. Yeah. The classroom discipline with the title of the film. That's right. It's perfect. So, yeah, exciting. Spooktacular. Get out. Yeah. Back to school with Mr. Ebling. Truth. A little bit of identity. <laughs> That's right. We'll just talk about the movie. The yeah. movie. We'll do that. Yeah. Hopefully you like this sort of way we did this episode. Yeah. Kind of bringing in that philosophy. It's not saying that that's what we're going to do from now on. This right. back, back to school. I mean, yeah. we're adults. We only go back to we're school. We're adults here. This bit. is higher. This is sort of like continuing ed. That's right. Professional development kind of thing. Right. So we don't have to be in school for semesters. This could be just, you know, yeah, just a two month thing. Talk, yeah. Back to school for just a little bit. A little bit of a continuing education. Yeah. A few more credit hours. Yeah. Just a few. Yeah. Get you that pay bump. Yeah. 
we'll we'll send you the paperwork. Right. So yeah, we threw out a lot in this episode. Yeah. You probably have some comments and questions. No Country for Old Men is a movie that is like this bottomless well of mm-hmm. commentary. So yep. I'm sure you've got some thoughts. We'd love to hear them. I'm sure we got something we different from your interpretation. <laughs> we probably missed some things that we could have talked about but we were, didn't. We were probably just flat out wrong about some stuff. Could be. I hope. Yeah, I'd, it could be. I don't want to say for sure we were wrong about anything. Ever. <laughs> but if we are wrong, please let, us, let know. us know. Nicely. Let's be kind about it. Yeah. So to listen to or comment on this or any of our past episodes, you can find us at canwestillbefriends.net or email us at feedback at canwestillbefriends.net. You can find us on Facebook at Can We Still Be Friends Podcast or Instagram at Can We Still Be Friends Pod. And if you'd like to leave us a voice message and perhaps be featured on the podcast, you can give us a call at 847-306-9532. Or you can always email us a voice memo. And as always, we'd love it if you could subscribe and leave us a rating or a review at Apple Podcasts. Those ratings really help spread the word about our show. Can We Still Be Friends is written and produced by Ryan Ebling and Nate Goss and edited by Nate Goss. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.